We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to the Watercooler Conversation, a safe space for the free exchange of ideas brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, coming to you today from our office in a sad and empty Sydney CBD, where the lockdown continues. Uh, Today, amongst other things, I want to pick up on the theme of critical race theory, the damage that this is doing to, is capable of doing in Australia. Critical race theory is the driving philosophy of the Black Lives Matter movement. It determines that the most important thing you need to know about me or you is the colour of our skin because that determines whether we rank amongst the oppressed or are one of the oppressors. This crude race-based argument has absolutely no place in Australia, in my opinion. It'll take the debate about the place of Indigenous Australians back at least 50 years as an obstacle to reconciliation. Jacinta Price is one person who understands firsthand the challenge of what we've come to call closing the gap, ensuring that Indigenous Australians, particularly those in regional Australia, enjoy the same respect, the same dignity and the same opportunities to thrive as all Australians. Jacinta is currently the Deputy Mayor of Alice Springs and the Indigenous Programme Director for the Centre for Independent Studies. And she was recently pre-selected as a Senator for the Northern Territory, opening the enticing possibility of her becoming an Aboriginal voice and a voice for common sense in the Australian Parliament. She joins me today from Alice Springs. Jacinta, welcome back to Watercooler. Thank you very much for having me. Jacinta, I put some fairly weighty matters on the table in that introduction, but before we get there, I'd really like to talk a bit about you. Uh, You were born in Darwin, you grew up in Alice Springs, you travelled a lot in your childhood. Tell me about your childhood and your formational years. Oh, well, I guess where do I start? Uh, So, yeah, born, my parents were living on Melville Island when I was born up on the Tiwi Islands. And so I guess I have a connection to uh, a lot of the Tiwi people. They um, regard me as their family. Uh, According to them, my baby spirit comes from a crocodile dreaming place so I have crocodile dreaming from the top end as well as deep salt water dreaming um Irigabe or Chikabanga in Tiwi and my Tiwi name is Spangmo uh, so I've got those connections from there uh, and of course my mum's Warpri so um for us our country is um northwest of Alice Springs the Tanami desert area my mother's from Yundamu, uh, which is 300 kilometres northwest from Alice Springs. Uh, Dad, of course, is a Newcastle lad, born and bred New South Wales. And um, I guess, uh, you know, I like to claim that, I like to say that Dad's got um, pig iron and coke and coal dreaming. And um, <laughs> so therefore I, I'm sort of connected to that part of the world in those ways. Um, so... Yeah, I was, I, was, I was born in Darwin uh, as they were teaching up there and then uh, they moved to the Kimberley to a place called um, Nunkanba near Fitzroy Crossing uh, when I was probably two years old. Um, actually, I think I was a little bit younger. Uh, by the time I was three, they'd, they'd uh, made the move to Alice Springs and I guess I've been here ever since apart from living for a brief while in Darwin uh, when my children were young. Um, but otherwise I've grown up in Alice Springs. I've been very much connected to um, the community Yundamu uh, and many other surrounding communities uh, throughout as a Warburi, as someone with Warburi heritage where, you know, where our family members stretch right across. Of course, I've talked about the Tiwi connection, but I have Aranda family and Luricha, uh, Arangu family, uh, just connections all over the Northern Territory. And my parents um, did a lot of travel as well when I was a kid. We travelled a lot around. I'd been through every state in Australia by the time I was six and uh, I'd been around the world by the time I was 12 on a on a, on a family holiday. Um, my, my parents saved up for, we did three months together, um, going to Africa and throughout Europe and America 
Uh, yeah, so it was, um, I, I'm, I guess I, I'm pretty blessed. I had a pretty blessed um, childhood being able to see this country as well as see the world as well. Um, but I've done all my schooling in Alice Springs and, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. I can't escape the Northern Territory no matter what I try to do. Yeah, we might come on and talk about a bit more about Yundamu and about your mother um, briefly in a minute. But I, I don't want to embarrass you, Jacinta, but it, it was only when we were researching for this session that I realised that you had a, a background in television. Uh, <laughs> we might have a look at that. We're just going to play you an extract now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Hey Playtimers, I've got some fantastic news. Yamba and Jacinta are heading out and about on their roadshow, cruising through the Northern Territory and Central Queensland. That was you. You play a pretty mean uh, foam guitar, I think, Jacinta. But uh, that, that was a Yamba. Blow up yeah. guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you, so that was Yamba the Honey Ant, I think. And and you and you had uh, had an educational component, I think, to it, that program. Yeah. So I worked with Yamba Honey Ant, Yamba the Honey Ant, for about a decade. Um, through firstly with Impaja Television. We had um, the program which um, we would produce and they would script write and song write and perform and uh, following on from that, I, uh, Yamber and I decided to branch off and start our own um, production company to continue the work that we were doing, which was not just the television program but we also had um, a number of musicals, um, roadshow musicals that we would tour throughout um, regional Australia. And um, uh, uh, there was certainly the educational co education component of the television program, uh, as well as the musical. Uh, we, we also uh, teamed up with the, the University of uh, Melbourne with their trachoma eradication, their eye health unit. Uh, to spread the message about um, uh, facial hygiene and uh, to, to get rid of trachoma, basically, because it's a, it was still a huge issue in a lot of the remote communities. So Yamba and I would um, we developed a, a series of songs around the importance of strong, clean faces, strong eyes. And, um, yeah, so we, we, ha we had some wonderful, wonderful years, myself and Yamba the Honey Ant, and... Uh, when we had Younger Pea Productions, uh, that was a, a whole family. Um, uh, at, at times, you know, it was a family affair. At times, uh, some of my children would um, play performing parts as well on on tour. Um, I know my my husband played a, um, a a caveman at one point. I think we did some filming in Winton. We were inspired by the dinosaur bones. Um, that yeah, I, I had some many years in in children's television, and in fact, I can proudly say that during one roadshow tour, we were up in, in the very tip of the Cape um, in Bumaga, and we managed to attract a crowd of six hundred and fifty screaming toddlers and 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 early childhood kids and and their families um which did a lot better than play school musical i'm led to believe so there's one up with yamba and um over play school musical in the abc so yes <laughs> great times those days were <laughs> yeah. um talk a bit about your your mother best price um she was a, a a politician of sorts in the in the Northern Territory Assembly, but I, I remember her um, very vividly as as a, as a woman who was prepared to stand up and say some things that were pretty uncomfortable for for a lot a lot of people who didn't who weren't familiar with life in the territory and particularly life in places like Yundamu, where your your mother comes from, which uh, is a place I've spent a little bit of time at. So 
I can testify that it's, uh, you know, there are many challenges for living in a remote community uh, and uh, particularly uh, one like Yundamu. Um, your mother, as I recall, was prepared to draw attention to some of the uh, social dysfunction and family dysfunction and violence and sexual violence within some of those communities, uh, which is, um, you know, it, it's not unusual to find in, in heavily, where, where welfare is, uh, you know, a part of people's lives. It's, it's a common thing. And it, it, but at that stage, I think people didn't want to talk about it, did they? And uh, I remember Tony Jones, to his credit, on Late Line on the ABC, was prepared to take it up and interviewed your mother a number of times. But there was this sort of view that we had to treat, that there was something, you know, uh, sacred about Aboriginal people, that we couldn't talk about anything bad that happened in those communities. Do you, do you recall that? And have we got over that now? I don't think we have entirely got over it. And, yeah, I mean, we, in a traditional context, um, I mean, I grew up very much being taught that you don't talk about what's really going on because if you did talk about what's really going on, you could very well upset um, well, perpetrators, really. Uh, and when you upset a perpetrator, then you're at risk of um, being attacked violently. And so you're always taught not to say anything about the reality of what's going on. And uh, my mother was a victim to her first husband. Um, and if she hadn't left him, uh, you know, she strongly believes that he would have killed her eventually. And I think having had that experience, having my mother having gone through that and the fact that we've witnessed so many people in our family um, being killed at the hands of others, um, mostly women but also men, I think we just got to a point where we had to, well, mum particularly had had enough and just wanted to tell the truth about what was going on. There were lots of conversations going on nationally but nothing that we could hear was actually telling the truth as to what was really happening. And mum wanted to set the record straight um, in that regard, you know, and she was a bit of a, uh, you know, it was hard for her coming from a place like Yundamu, uh, you know, in her first, she was promised to become the second wife to her older sister's husband. And at 13, uh, her older sister would often in, on the, in the evening would come looking for her to take her to their camp to live and take on a wife's apprenticeship, if you like. She would rebel and run away. Um, she'd witnessed other girls being taken away um, in, in really horrific ways um, to be forced into an arranged marriage. And she decided, no, I don't, there's no way I want that for myself. And so she was quite rebellious for a woman, well, a young girl in that situation. Um, you know, I think I, I have to take my hat off to my grandfather for being so open-minded and having the understanding that he wasn't going to force his daughter uh, into something she didn't want to be a part of. And, in fact, um, I have a lot of respect for mum's original promised husband in that regard too because he too saw mum was adamant she wanted to finish her education, which she wanted to get her education and she wanted to do things her way. So they respected her wishes and, and let her do so. Um, my mother, unfortunately, you know, for, had formed a relationship with, with a, well, you know, Aboriginal way they call them husband and wife as soon as two teenagers get together. It's probably just a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship uh, when she was in high school and she had my brother at the age of 14. And, and he was a very violent man. And, and um, again, she managed to escape that situation. And so I think coming from that sort of background, um, where she stood up for herself uh, and as a result managed to live a life that she, that she chose for herself, get an education, do the things that she wanted to do and, and have a husband and a family that supported her to do so, well, then um, it put her in a good place to be able to say no to the things that we had been told, had, you know, the behaviours we'd been told to carry on with because she wanted the truth to be told. Uh, and, and we had had enough of burying our own family members uh, and being confronted with alcohol and violence and those sorts of things. And um, because there's so much, um, I guess, you know, white guilt nowadays in, in, in our nation, it's still very difficult to talk about these things because um, so, for so often in, in the narrative, you know, it's the Aboriginal person, the victim, white person, horrible, bad, 
uh, colonizer bad. Uh, so we're not allowed to recognize what's wrong with our culture that's doing us harm, and we're not allowed to speak out against it as a result. Um, we we're supposed to um, you know continue on the narrative as as the Aboriginal person being the victim to the colonizer. Uh, and not stand up for ourselves. And while, you know, the shift is happening and, you know, my mother, of course, was one of those um, women who, who broke that mould and has sort of um, certainly paved the way for myself to follow uh, and other women to follow, we've still got a long, long way to go um, to really address these issues. And, and in this current climate, you know, this, this woke culture... Um, in in this woke culture that we're currently faced with, um, we we're expected not to speak the truth. We're told not to speak the truth. We're not allowed to do that, and it's problematic. It's really problematic. Here's the thing, Jacinta. My my thinking about uh, indigenous people and the indigenous the challenge of of closing the gap, as we like to call it was really changed dramatically by my visit to Yundamu. I don't think anybody who hasn't been there could have, you know, I certainly couldn't prepare myself for, frankly, the shock of of seeing uh, everyday life in a town like that uh, and and the sort of things that, that the rest of us take to granted as part of modern Australia, simply not available. Um, and it's not just the remote location, as you know. There's a certain dysfunctional aspect to the to uh, those remote communities because they're entirely artificial right that's like they've been they're being maintained by government welfare they're not um there's no sense that you're part of the free market at all you can't you can't rent a house other than a government house you can't own a house it's very hard to run a business uh, the whole place seems to be run on on almost communist lines in that sense so everything comes Absolutely. to the government uh be, everything else we talk about we talk about an aboriginal voice to parliament and all that and i listen to those arguments but i can't com keep coming back to the fundamental question how will it improve life for people in places like yundamu how will it give them more hope more opportunities uh more chance of just bettering themselves of, 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 of being able to improve life for their families and themselves? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? That's the question that everyone wants to understand better. Uh, I, I I think the idea of um, a voice to parliament is like trying to reinvent the wheel, um, and I don't agree with it. But um, uh, what I do agree with is this notion that yeah, it's sort of it's social. If you want to see socialism at play in our in our country, simply come to the Northern Territory, go out to a remote community where uh, the the land is communally owned, where you can't actually uh, use that you you can't you can't use that land for economic development. You can't sell off parcels of land for your own economic benefit. Uh, you can't utilize your land for joint venture with with private enterprise to uh you know create actually create an economy out in remote communities and there's this there's this notion that somehow in communities people um need jobs yes that's that's true uh and and you'll hear activists um consistently hound the government and suggest that the government must create jobs in these communities and again uh, you know, places like the Northern Territory largely depend on uh, government funding because we have such a massive public service. And what we don't, what we don't see, we, you know, when when people want jobs in com communities, they want an extension of this public service uh, instead of looking at um, supporting and encouraging Indigenous Australians to be able to set up their own businesses in remote communities, create the jobs for themselves. I mean, you can go to a remote community, they don't have a, a butcher and a mechanic and a baker and uh, all those things that, that we take for granted in other parts of the country. Um, you don't have private home ownership, um, which, is, which is a human, human right under the UN Convention. So... 
Um, why aren't we uh, allowing for for traditional owners in remote communities to have um, to own their own land, to build their own homes, um, therefore have a sense of uh, responsibility for the housing that they're living in, uh, instead of this constant dependency on government, on welfare, on um, public housing, which is clearly actually uh, taking away agency from remote Indigenous Australians, uh, it, it's it's taking away their meaning for, for living. I mean, every single human being um, finds purpose for, from, um, from making a living, supporting themselves and supporting their own families. But we're, we're, we're in 2021 and this isn't happening in remote communities because this Welfare dependency uh, has taken place. I mean, we have Aboriginal organisations who have become part of that. We have, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, land councils in the Northern Territory uh, control um, Aboriginal people's wealth, Aboriginal people's traditional owners' country and traditional owners themselves don't have real control over um their communities, the, the control is in the hands of lawyers and anthropologists um, and, the, and these land councils. And for such a long time, the leadership, you know, governments past have, have not been um, game enough to, to actually make any changes. So I don't understand how a voice to parliament is supposed to actually make these changes happen. Um, and I don't see how that's supposed to happen from a grassroots point of view, especially when this, this voice to parliament is being driven by peak Indigenous bodies. And these peak Indigenous bodies aren't people who have been democratically elected to represent Indigenous Australians. So you can't actually... You, you can't believe that they actually represent Indigenous Australians, and particularly grassroots Indigenous Australians. Um, the best opportunity that we, that we have is, the, is what we already have in place. We, we've got a parliament and we've got a democratic process to elect members to parliament and, and the numbers of Indigenous people going forward um, as elected representatives is growing. So we have to ask the question, well, if we've, got any, if we've had Indigenous people in there already, what are they doing as the voice of, of, of Indigenous Australians? Are they doing a good enough job? Um, you know, why, why do we look at um, Indigenous leadership and choose not to use constructive criticism about their performance and question? There's, there's this fear to actually question uh, Indigenous leadership because one might be called racist if one does so. Um, but if you don't hold every single Australian to the same standard, you're never going to get people, um, you, well, you're never going to get a true equality. You're never going to have people um, reach for the same standards. And there's a lowering of standards that goes on with, uh, in, with, for Indigenous Australians that uh, non-Indigenous Australians very much accept because um, the threat of being called racist is far worse than actually saying, well, hang on a second, these are fellow Australians. We must all hold one another to the same standard. If you do it for your own family member, why wouldn't you do it for a fellow Australian? Uh, or why would you not do it because of the colour of their skin? The tyranny of, ex of, of low expectations we talk about, don't we? Um, you know, this idea that, oh, Aboriginal people don't have the capacity somehow to perform in the same way as white kids do. And a story comes back to me from my time in Yundamu when I visited the school at about 10 in the morning and there were, I think, maybe three kids in the entire school. Uh, and when I asked somebody about this, they said, well, you have to understand, Indigenous people have a different sense of time and they go to bed in a natural rhythm so these kids can't get up in time. And I thought, Goodness gracious. I mean, what a disservice you're doing for kids if you're finding excuses for them not being in the one place in that whole town that could really give them a leg up. Mm. It, it, it's, it's, it's across the board, this nonsense idea that somehow Aboriginal people are different um, 
you know, I mean, if, if that was the case, if in fact they had a natural rhythm, they'd be up with the sun and down to sleep with the sun. That was how we did it back in the day. Um, so it's it is always this excuse making uh, going on. You know, it's like the argument that I've heard. So there's a group of grandmothers against removal uh, with regard to ensuring that, you know, less Aboriginal children are put into foster care. Now, my idea of, well, if we don't want to stop that from happening, then we have to have responsible people take care of these children. But the grandmothers want to do things like throw a bunch of mattresses on the ground and have 15 children sprawled out on the ground. Um, and that's their idea of caring for these kids. That's, you know, that's how we do it Aboriginal way. That's what, you know, as the saying goes. Well, as, I, as far as I'm concerned, that's not, that's not good enough. Uh, and that standard isn't good enough. And there is a standard for a reason. And every single child um, should have their uh, human rights upheld to that standard, regardless of the colour of their skin, regardless of their cultural background. If they're Australian citizens, they're Australian citizens. Um, so let's stop lowering these standards, particularly for Aboriginal children, when clearly we have the highest rates of um, child sexual abuse. Uh, our children have the highest rates of uh, STIs. Uh, they experience violence far more than any other kids in this country. Uh, so therefore, clearly, these lower standards are not working for our kids. And if to me, it's it's complete racism to to lower these standards for Indigenous children and call it um, call it culture. It's not culture. Um, you know, and, and the argument that uh, poverty uh, is what leads to these circumstances, well, you can go, you can go to other parts of the world where there's poverty exists and but people living in poverty still maintain their dignity and the dignity for their children. They still push hard to ensure that their children are educated so that they get out of that poverty we're not seeing that in australia we're not seeing that because we've got this lowering of standards we've got the fear of being called racist um, we've got um, a, a lot of indigenous activists who are, are you know are pushing against lifting the standards for our children and it's just not good enough it it, it really is not good enough in, in 2021 for any Australian child to be subject to these standards that are that are there that Indigenous kids have to put up with. In Australia's colonial history, um, uh, there's much in there which uh, which uh, was much as good, uh, but obviously mistakes, terrible mistakes, terrible uh, things that happened during that period, but. It seems to me that by focusing entirely on that as the source of uh, indigenous uh, disadvantage and misery and, and not focusing on these other aspects, uh, we, we, we're never going to really learn the lessons and recover, are we? No, we're not. Um, and, and, and that's the problem is that, okay, so yes, we experience colonisation in our country's history. Um, we have some pretty dark parts of, of that history um, for both, you know, those who were brought here against their will and dispossessed of their own land, like some of my ancestors were who were brought over from England and Scotland and, and Ireland. Uh, and then, of course, we have Indigenous Australians who were also dispossessed of their own land. So it went on on all sides. Um, but those who are most successful nowadays, and particularly those of Indigenous heritage, of Indigenous descent, are those who have successfully assimilated into Australian society. Those who are the most marginalised are those who haven't been able to do that. And they are largely, completely and utterly left behind. Um, I mean, we, we historically also... Uh, I mean, in, in the 1950s, there was a, a association called the Half-Caste Association here in, in the Northern Territory, and they opted to be recognised as citizens um, and didn't want to be, um, I, I guess, grouped in with, um, you know, full-blood traditional Aboriginal people. Um, they wanted to be able to um, take the opportunities that were available to them in Australia at the time and make the best for themselves. And that's what a lot of people of Indigenous descent have done, as we, as we see. Um, they are those who are running the organisations, the Aboriginal organisations that rely on government funding. They are the ones that ha have, have, have um, private home, home, home ownership. 
um, and, and, you know, have six-figure salaries and, and leading successful lives whose children are going to university. Um, and, and they are the ones where I guess the gap in terms of closing the gap, the, the gap exists between those and other Australians and marginalised Indigenous Australians in regional and remote communities whose first language is not English, um, who, who still uh, live under, you know, cultural constraints and customary law and those sorts of things. And yet uh, those, with, those with the greatest grievances and, and looking toward colonisation in the past are those who are, in fact, the most successful uh, of those with Indigenous heritage in this country. Um, and, again, it, you know, to suggest that we have high rates of domestic and family violence because of colonisation and that we were a peaceful people uh, prior to colonisation is an outright lie in itself and it doesn't actually help us to resolve any of these, any of the problems that we face. Um, it, it, it's, you know, pointing the finger and blaming elsewhere doesn't get to the crux of the problem or give us a starting point to begin to actually address the problems that we face. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, we've had this experiment. It's gone on for far too many years. Uh, we now know the result. Welfare does not lift people out of poverty. It keeps them there. Uh, uh, we we do know that people who are, have the encouragement, the incentive, the freedom to go out and have a go uh, and have the chance for education do succeed. That's what's happened all over Asia since capitalism was introduced. But it seems to me this whole Black Lives Matter approach and critical race theory does exactly the opposite. It, it disempowers people by telling them uh, what matters most is the colour of your skin, uh, if you're black, then you're oppressed and there's nothing you can do to change that. It's, it's inherent in you. And if you're white, then you're a racist oppressor and there's nothing I can do, apparently. Uh, this is just uh, pernicious, it seems to me, just persuading people that they are the colour of their skin and that's that. It's, I mean, it's racism. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's absolute racism to just suggest to somebody you know, you're, you're lesser because of the colour of your skin. You know, someone else who's got a lighter toned skin colour than you is automatically privileged because of that and you're not um, and therefore you're a victim is, is absurd, is utterly, utterly absurd and um, it removes that person's agency um, and their understanding that they're absolutely capable of doing anything and everything for themselves. Um, and, and the colour of their skin certainly doesn't matter in, you know, in calculating their success. It's, it's what you put into life. Um, and so and, and these attempts to cut and paste Black Lives Matter to Australia is utterly ridiculous. Uh, you know, and if anything, we've got more in common with um, Native American Indians and, and as opposed to African Americans uh historically so again there's we shouldn't be attempting to um take on take on you know these these idea ideologies from other countries that have nothing to do with us that don't work for us that you know when you've got a group of people who are marginalized it's just looking to further marginalize those people not to um encourage you know self-responsibility um and, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is another huge um, factor that hasn't come into play yet, particularly in Australia. Um, those, those things, taking responsibility for oneself, for one's own life, uh, is, is an act of freedom, is, is the ultimate freedom, is giving yourself opportunity and choice and saying, I can do this no matter, no matter what my background is. I mean, if for a minute, I ever considered that somehow the colour of my skin was a detriment to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I just it just doesn't come into it doesn't compute for me personally um, in that regard. I mean, I, I can I, I consider my circumstances, you know, as an Aboriginal woman. Sometimes I sit back and I think, oh, yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> I would consider myself an Aboriginal woman, um, but um, that for me, it's about having been a human 
commitment and, and, and applying the hard work to get the results that you want and getting back up again when you've been knocked down. And that's how you get the rewards. That's how you get somewhere in life. And if I look at my own circumstances, I've been knocked down plenty of times, but I get back up and um, I, I meet people one-on-one as just that people, as other people, as human beings. Uh, so the divisiveness of, of, of identity politics um, is, is detrimental to any human being. So uh, you've been pre-selected for the Senate, marvellous. You're following in the footsteps of the great Neville Bonner, who was the first Indigenous person to, uh, be, rep- to, 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 be, to serve in, in, the, in Parliament. He was uh, entered Parliament almost 50 years ago exactly. Uh, as you know, Jacinta, we were planning uh, a great gala dinner to celebrate this occasion, uh, and we are, but we've had to put that back till later in the year. But anyway, Neville Bonner was was like like you was standing for the Liberal Party or the Country Liberal Party in your case, and um, he said that uh, he told of an encounter with with Bill Hayden, the former Labor leader, who took him to task because he said, "Look, uh, Labor represents Aboriginal people," and he said, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm a member of the Liberal Party." <laughs> he wasn't actually, <laughs> but he joined the next morning, uh, just offended that somebody mm. should assume he broke one way because of his, uh, his ethnic background. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's utterly ridiculous. Um, and, I, you know, I feel incredibly, uh, I'm incredibly blessed that I've been pre-selected 50 years from um, the year that Neville Bonner first um, was sworn into our federal parliament. Um, that is very significant for me and very moving for me, in fact. And he was an incredible, it's almost like he was, you know, before his time, but what he was saying back then, um, you know, resonates great, you know, hugely with me now uh, and, and is just as important now as uh, it was back then. Then, I mean, he was, Neville was all for, uh, Indigenous Australians having e- equal opportunity just as everybody else, private home ownership, um, being ec- economically independent, standing on one's own two feet. Um, these are all the things he stood for and fought for. And rightly so, he should be insulted that it would be assumed that you automatically, you belong to the left. That's what disgusts me about the left thinking is that as an Indigenous person, you're supposed to belong to the left and to Labor. And, 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 and Labor pretend as though they have been the champion for Indigenous Australians when um, a lot of significant elements of um, what took place in our country's history uh, was, were, you know, opportunities created for Indigenous Australians were created by coalition governments. Um, the referendum was a coalition um, government initiative, um, you know, the Land Rights Act in the Northern Territory. Um, there's a raft of measures that a coalition government implemented to benefit Indigenous Australians. Um, and, and this is another, you know, they talk about truth-telling in our country. For me, truth-telling is understanding what went on historically in, in all of its complexity, in understanding what went on politically as well. And the more if people actually understood what went on, they'd realise that actually Labor aren't um, the champion of of Indigenous uh, Australians. Um, I think when the equal pay decision was being brought along, the unions initially um, were dead set against it. They didn't want to support Indigenous Australians. They proposed that that only um, equal pay was only... uh, awarded to those, to Indigenous Australians who'd signed up to um, the union movement. Um, and then they thought, actually, no, it was a good idea because then it would, um, it would, it would rid us of um, the Indigenous workforce. Um, so, and, and now, they, now they hijack the Wave Hill walk-off celebrations every single year. Um, and these are the things that, you know, a lot of Indigenous Australians don't understand they've had they've been completely hoodwinked um and and they're not prepared to stop and listen so i mean i'm here to change that narrative um i'm here to 
do some truth telling in what it actually really means to tell the truth in, in, in doing truth telling is not to listen to people like Bruce Pascoe. It's not to continue to push this ridiculous um, myth that we were part of the Flora and Fauna Act that didn't actually exist. Um, and these are all things I have to say that um, that the member for Barton has um, has suggested are all true, um, Dark Emu and the Flora and Fauna Act, uh, you know, we've we've got to know our facts we've got to know our history it's very very important and another thing that that bonner warned um uh, at the time in the 70s was uh, warned us against the the black panther movement to me i see you know similar things similar parallels with the black lives movement he said the, the militant black panther movement would would see if it was brought over here in australia it, it would see white pitted against coloured and coloured against white and Australian against Australian. And that is exactly what the Black Lives Matter movement um, is looking to do. And these are, all the, these are all the things that we were warned about by Neville Bonner back in the 70s and we have to wake up to them now ourselves and we have to move away from this racial stereotype that somehow all Aboriginal people belong to the left and belong to labour. It's, it's deeply insulting because it suggests that we can't think for ourselves, uh, that that we're one homogenous group of, you know, people that think with one brain, and we're all supposed to think the same. It's like when when I, a lot of my detractors, and particularly white detractors, say to me, "Well, Jacinta, um, you, you know, not very many Aboriginal people agree with you," and I, I, <laughs> I turn around and I say to them, "Well, you think, um, and 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 not very many white people probably agree with you." And um, <laughs> but that's ridiculous when I would suggest that, isn't it? Because it's a ridiculous notion to suggest that people of a particular race or skin colour should all think the same and not be respected and recognised as individuals, free thinking individuals in our own right. Well, that's right. Although I must say, I agree with almost everything you've said today, Jacinta. But thank you so much for joining us. Good luck. Uh, all the best for your your run for the Senate and uh, fingers crossed we, we look forward to seeing some of that truth-telling, uh, honesty and common sense in the Parliament. Thank you for joining Thank us. you very much for having me, Nick. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater and thank you for listening.